Total Tuscany Podcast, Episode 74. So the hero is Jacopo Torni, this young man who we know uh, was a friend of Michelangelo, as I mentioned, and who Michelangelo invited to work with him on the Sistine Chapel in 1508 when he was called to Rome. Um, the, there are several guides in the story. Um, one of them is Piero de Cosimo, who, um, if you've studied art history, you may have come across Piero de Cosimo. He was a really interesting character. Um, Giorgio Vasari, who was a contemporary art historian, tells us that Piero de Cosimo lived more like a beast than a man. Apparently, he lived on hard-boiled eggs that were boiled in the same pots as his glue that he used for the for his paintings um, and he was known for these big parades through the city of Florence which were marvels and um, so I tried to include some um, evocations of these parades that Pierre de Cosimo uh, created because I think he's such an interesting character. Author and art historian Laura Morelli brings these 16th century Italian Renaissance characters to life in her latest novel, The Giant. Based on a true story, The Giant is historical fiction set in Florence in the year 1500. The Giant is quite possibly Florence's most famous statue, Michelangelo's The David. The Giant is available today at all major book retailers or online at lauramorelli.com. Mr. Pat Companion, good to have you back in the studio as we we are six feet apart as the COVID physical distancing continues. But uh, one thing that is uniting us today is is the David. You cannot go wrong with the David. The David. Right? The David. Good to see you again, Trav. <laughs> yeah, we're looking forward to this conversation. Uh, we visited the David, right? But- well, it, it's interesting because in the piazza, it, it, it's it's there, the replica, but we've only been to the academia. I've only been to the academia once. I don't know how many times you've gone. I think I've gone twice. Yeah, it, but it's a completely different experience. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's, it, it is awe-inspiring yeah. when you walk in, yeah. right? especially the way it's set up and and framed. Uh, I, what I do know is that what we did is we bought like early entry tickets because it, there are long lines, and I think this is going to change once people start going back to Italy about how long these lines are going to be in mass tourism in, in, in Florence, and that's another completely different podcast we can have. But when you go to the to the Academia, the lines can be long because seeing the David is 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 on everybody's bucket list, right? It's on their bucket list, and. But I think, uh, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to this conversation because I don't feel like I know enough about what I'm looking at. Does that make sense? It, it does. And the conversation you're talking about is with Laura Morelli. She's been on the Total Tuscany podcast before uh, talking about her books. Her new one out is called The Giant, which is uh, a historical fictional novel where she intertwines her expertise of art history with a fictional story. It's based on uh, true characters, which is which is uh, is a lot of fun. And and Laura is so passionate, and you'll hear that passion in her voice uh, uh, about what she's written, which has been really a labor of love or something that's really haunted her for the last 20 years of her life. It's Laura Morelli talking about The Giant on this edition of the Total Tuscany Podcast. (laughs) 
Laura, the last time we talked on the Total Tuscany podcast, you had just come out with a couple books, uh, The Gondola Maker being one of them. Now you have a brand new book out called The Giant, based on Michelangelo's David. And I'm friends with you on LinkedIn, and this popped up the other day. I thought it was interesting. You said you started writing this story 20 years ago. Has this been a, a labor of love or just something that has haunted you for the last 20 years? Well, that's a good question. I think the answer is a little bit of both. It definitely has been a passion project for me, but also one that wouldn't let me go. Um, I started uh, writing a proposal for a nonfiction book some 20 years ago about Michelangelo's David. I had the idea that in 2004, it would be great if there was a nonfiction retelling of the story of Michelangelo's David. That would have been the 500th anniversary of the unveiling of Michelangelo's David. It came out into the streets of Florence in 1504. So leading up to 2004, I wrote about a 50-page proposal for this book on Michelangelo's David. I sent it to my agent. She loved the idea. We shopped it around to a few publishers, and one of the publishers got right back to us and said, you know, we love this idea. Unfortunately, we just bought the same idea from another author this <laughs> this week. And so a British author by the name of Anton Jill had already sold the idea of doing a 2004 book on Michelangelo's David. And it's a great book, by the way. I highly recommend it. And there have been a, a couple of other nonfiction books about Michelangelo and, and this particular sculpture in the meantime. So that was fine. I, I put my proposal away and turned to other projects. But the subject of Michelangelo's David was just something that wouldn't let me go. I kept going back to the proposal, thinking about the story. It was something that did haunt me for a number of years. I wrote other nonfiction books. I turned to historical fiction about stories in the history of art. And one day it occurred to me, you know, there's something about the story of Michelangelo's David and the drama and the unfolding of the creation of the sculpture and its journey through the streets of Florence into the Piazza della Signoria that lends itself more to a historical novel than a nonfiction story. So... I pulled the story out again after some years and started tinkering with it. Um, and again, I, I would put it away for a while and I would think, you know, maybe I'm just not going to do this book. I, I've got other projects that were sort of hotter potatoes, let's say, and, um, you know, got those out into the world. But this story of the David kept pulling at me. So finally, uh, this year, I decided I'm going to finish this thing and get it out because it's a really dramatic story in and of itself. And one thing I love about historical fiction is that we know often a lot about the historical facts. And in the case of the David, we actually know quite a lot. There are a lot of contemporary documents in the cathedral archives and other contemporary people who wrote about Michelangelo and the creation of this Colossus. And um, so we know quite a bit. And yet there's so much missing uh, that we don't know. And for me, as an art historian and a historical novelist, that's the excitement that pulls me into a story. It's, you know, how do we put together this puzzle? You know, it's like a puzzle where you only have 30% of the pieces, you know, and then you have to make up the other 70%. And that was very much how this book came together. I, I feel very strongly about 
um, historical knowledge and facts as linchpins in the story. And then I think it's really fun and exciting then to imagine the pieces that are missing. And so um, I hope readers of this story will uh, appreciate both the historical fact as well as uh, the parts that are more imagined. So, so when you do the research, Laura, do you, uh, do you find yourself... Do you have to do a lot of that in Italy, or are you able to do some of that remotely? I guess we're not sure how long, how much time you spend in Italy itself, but uh, uh, the research is probably half the fun. Where, where do you where do you do this? Yeah, it's a good question. The research is is so much fun. I love, love, love the research. And, um, you know, nowadays there's so much that can be mined um, online. I really am a big proponent and lover of contemporary sources. Like I said, I, I really enjoy reading what people of the time said about things. And certainly for the Italian Renaissance, there's a lot, a lot of, there are a lot of contemporary sources that are published. Um, and so that's, that's pretty easy to access. Um, and I go to Italy just as often as, um, as I can get away with it. <laughs> as often as my family will let me go. <laughs> do you, do you find yourself What's more interesting for you, the historical the historical fiction or the nonfiction? Oh, I love both in equal measure. I mean, I really find that it's fun to um, go back and forth between fiction and nonfiction projects. I think it helps sort of reset my brain. Um, so typically, you know, I'll, I'll go, for example, from uh, a historical novel to a, a art history class online or something like that. I try to balance the two because I find that one fuels the other. And um, one can, nonfiction in particular is sort of a palate cleanser for fiction. So, you know, some of the, the, the fiction projects are, they're long and they're difficult. I mean, there's no two ways about it. Anyone who has ever tried to write a novel realizes that it's, it's hard. And it's it doesn't actually get easier the more the more projects you do, um, and it's it takes a lot out of you. And so at the end, um, it's it's refreshing to go to a nonfiction project and kind of um, you know re doing that research and and reading the the history fills me back up. It replenishes the well, and then I can I'm ready to go back into um, a fiction project after that. How much time have you spent with the David, just sitting in the academia, just staring at its marvel and, and, and coming up with your ideas? I've been to see the, the real David multiple times. And, you know, it's amazing to me how many people say that it's one of the most incredible things they've seen in Italy. I was in um, Florence with my family last summer. I have four teenage children and we, um, we traveled quite a bit. We were there for most of the summer. My kid, my oldest son was born in Italy. They, on this particular trip, they saw Rome, they saw Venice, they saw lots of things in between. And when we got back home to the U.S., I asked each one of them, you know, what was your favorite thing that you saw on this trip? And they all said that they loved the David. It was in the top three of the, you know, everything that they saw in Italy, which I find really amazing to think that, um, you know, a teenager in 2020 would find a 500-year-old sculpture the most fascinating thing <laughs> that they saw all summer, you know. 
And I think that it has the that kind of effect on so many people. Uh, there have been magazine articles written, you know, about people fainting in front of the sculpture or having some kind of transcendental experience. It really does have a um, an effect on people in some ways that uh, where in which words fail words fail to describe. And um, so, I, you know, if, if you're going to Italy, you definitely want to see it in person. You know, that's interesting that you said the words failed to describe, because if you see the replica out in the piazza and you're like, okay, it's with a bunch of other replicas and statues, and you're like, okay, yeah, this is, it's a David, how much different can you be? But then when you, when you walk into the academia and you're like, oh my God, and it does take your breath away because you can't even compare the two. I mean, the the magnificence right. just it does take your breath away. Absolutely, absolutely, and and I still think that um, you know there is so just so much to understand and unpack around that sculpture. It's it's there's so many layers to it. You know, not just the the visual appreciation, but the whole history and everything around it. I, you know, I was. Um, inspired to create an hour-long video class around the David, which um, I'm offering right now online to um, people who purchase the historical novel. So all the details are in the, the book, which is called The Giant. Mm -hmm. And um, But really, it is a window. The sculpture is a window onto the history of Florence. And if you really unpack all the history around it, it gives you such a great perspective on the history of the Italian Renaissance. So it's just a, a doorway into that history and, and a way for us to really appreciate what Florence was like in the, at the turn of the 16th century. What was the Laura, I'm curious, what was the most surprising, uh, interesting thing you uncovered about either the David or Michelangelo while you were researching this book? Well, one of the things that fascinated me about this was um, the public reception of this sculpture. I mean, if you think about it, it was the first colossal male nude that anyone had seen for a thousand years. You know, the last colossal marble male nude was lying in the dirt, you know, under the city of Rome. And so um, that was such a, that was one of the things that made this sculpture so groundbreaking. And I wondered what, you know, how people really interpreted that and saw that, and particularly other artists, because around 1500, Florence was the place to be. It was sort of like, Today, if you were a musical theater student um, and you, you know, your dream would be to go to New York City on Broadway and make it big, right? Well, well, in 1500, um, the same was true of Florence for an artist. You know, any artist who wanted to make it big wanted wanted to go to uh, to Florence. So, um, you know, I wondered about these many other artists who were living in Florence at the same time. We think about, um, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, who, by the way, was painting the Mona Lisa at exactly the same moment and then in the same place, uh, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, but not only Leonardo, there were, you know, there was Andrea della Robbia, there were, there was Botticelli, these, these giants of the Italian Renaissance that were living there. And I wondered what they thought of this giant colossus coming out. So I decided to um, to pick for the narrator of this story, 
a young man named Jacopo Torni, who was a real artist and we know from historical documents was a close friend of Michelangelo, but we don't really know a lot about him. So in a way he was a perfect narrator for a historical novel. We know just enough about him to make him interesting, but um, you know, not so much that you, you couldn't make up a whole uh, life for him. So um, the story is really kind of his relationship with Michelangelo and, and how he felt living in the shadow of this giant, um, you know, not only the giant sculpture, but this giant artist um, whom everyone must have had to judge themselves against uh, in 1500. So who, who's the hero in your story and who's the guide in the story? The hero and the guide. Okay, so the hero is Jacopo Torni, this young man who we know uh, was a friend of Michelangelo, as I mentioned, and who Michelangelo invited to work with him on the Sistine Chapel in 1508 when he was called to Rome. Um, the, there are several guides in the story. Um, one of them is Piero di Cosimo, who... Um, if you've studied art history, you may have come across Piero di Cosimo. He was a really interesting character. Um, Giorgio Vasari, who was a contemporary art historian, tells us that Piero di Cosimo lived more like a beast than a man. Apparently, he lived on hard-boiled eggs that were boiled in the same pots as his glue that he used for the for his paintings. Um, and he was known for these big parades through the city of Florence, which were marvels. And um, so I tried to include some um, evocations of these parades that Pierre de Cosimo uh, created, because I think he's such an interesting character. Now, Laura, I had heard that the David was carved, this is probably wrong, but I had heard that David was carved by Michelangelo in Rome, and then carted to Florence. Is that just a is that just a myth? That's that's a myth. Yes, um, the the block of marble that Michelangelo used was um, a block of marble that people in Florence called Il Gigante, the the giant. It was a um, tall, narrow block that had lain on its side for two generations in the workyard of the cathedral. Now the cathedral workyard was a big construction site, essentially. It was a place right on the edge of Florence Cathedral where Brunelleschi had designed his famous egg-shaped dome. Um, it was a place where there were stonemasons and carpenters and um, lots of people milling around working over several hundred years. So this marble block had lain dormant in the cathedral workyard. Um, the cathedral committee and the, the city government of Florence had hired two sculptors prior to giving this, this uh, block to Michelangelo. These um, previous two sculptors had taken a crack at it and had abandoned their projects saying that the block was not really um, suitable for carving. Uh, needless to say, Michelangelo had different ideas about it. Um, I think it probably posed a an artistic and technical challenge for him being a, a, a tall, skinny block. Um, he had to really think about the composition of the figure in using a block of that shape. But um, I think part of the neat mythology of the David is, is uh, taking on that that block, which must have seemed sort of like a, a foe in and of itself. <laughs> the Academia Gallery in Florence is the permanent home of the David. It's a must-see when you visit. Now, COVID-19 has a lot of tourists wondering when they will be able to return to Italy. 
only time will tell, but when that does happen, we are here to help. Pat and I offer a free 15-minute travel consultation to help you get started on your journey. If you want more assistance or an official itinerary, well, we can help with that as well. Just send us an email, totaltuscany at gmail.com. We are so passionate about Tuscany, and we want to share our experiences with you the best we can. You know, it's not always what you know, but who you know. So let us leverage our relationships that we've built over the last decade to give you an Italian getaway that you're never going to forget. So take advantage of our free 15-minute consultation by sending us an email, totaltuscany at gmail.com. Um, the book is called The Giant. Laura Morelli is our guest on the Total Tuscany podcast, and you can uh, buy the book at Amazon. You can get it at lauramorelli.com. Um, one of the things that, that, that I see is that if you order by, what, June 30th, you get an immersive video experience with you. Uh, the exclusive video tour unveils the real story of Michelangelo's David with splendid views of the sculpture at its birthplace, Renaissance Florence. Can you? What, how, how important is that when you write a book to provide that interactive experience that goes just beyond the pages? How much does that enhance the story that you're trying to tell? Well, I think for historical fiction, it's particularly relevant. You know, whenever I visit book clubs, uh, people tell me, they all, the first thing they want to know is, okay, well, you know, what actually is uh, faithful to the history and what part did you make up? And certainly for an art historical novel, um, it is by its very nature visual. And so I try to... Um, provide my readers with lots of juicy tidbits and nice pictures and videos. Um, if you go to lauramorelli.com slash giant, you will see there um, I have access to an online research vault that has lots of my behind the scenes research. There's further reading, there are book club questions, there are lots of pictures. There's, um, you know, kind of behind the scenes information about the different characters in the book. And then also this online video about the uh, the true story behind Michelangelo's David. So I hope that is helpful for book clubs or for anyone really who wants the story behind the story. So Pat did one of your classes on Etruscan women. Do you plan on doing a class, should we say, on this? Yes, this is another passion project of mine. I love the ancient Etruscans. And for any of you um, Italy and Tuscany lovers out there, I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone. The Etruscans are so cool and interesting. Um, I've spent a lot of time uh, teaching Etr Etruscan art and also studying. Um, I have an online, uh, a full online course on Etruscan art that's a, that's a paid course. But I also have a free uh, hour-long course on women in Etruscan art, which I think is a really fascinating topic. And I thought was going to be um, a fairly narrow topic. It is, it is, let's face it, a fairly esoteric subject. But I'll tell you the truth, Pat and Travis, I have been blown away at how many people are excited about the topic of Etruscan women. Um, people seem to be very interested in it, and the response has just been incredible. So if you want Check out uh, more about women in Etruscan art. You can just go to lauramorelli.com slash Etruscans, and um, you can sign up for the class there. But do you, do you see yourself doing a class on the David? 
Yes, well, this this class that I have right now that is on the David um, is a little more than an hour long and it's free. Um, I'm actually putting together a more comprehensive um, online course on Michelangelo uh, in his whole career. So if anyone wants to dive into that, you can just send me an email at laura at lauramorelli.com and I'll let you know when it's ready. That the, the I took the class the the free class on the Etruscan women. It was it was fascinating, Laura. You you are you're like a, an energizer bunny. The wealth of information <laughs> that you provide to your your listeners and your readers is amazing. Um, Thank I, you very much. I I as you probably can tell, I mean, I think art history is the most fascinating subject in the world, and to me, it's super exciting right now to be able to have the technology to bring it to people outside the college classroom. So I just am super excited about that opportunity. It's it's fantastic. I'm I'm curious, what's the next big project you have out there on your radar screen? I have another book coming out later in 2020. Um, on September the 8th, I have a historical novel coming out that's called The Night Portrait. It's again, an art historical novel. And um, this one is a little bit different than anything I've done before. It's a dual timeline story. So it goes between back and forth between the 15th century and the 20th century. So from the 1490s to the 1940s. Are you guys familiar with Leonardo da Vinci's portrait of the lady with the ermine? I'm not, but when you told me it's a dual timeline, I'm like, is this an Outlander book? Like, is it is it like Outlander? <laughs> well, it does go back and forth from from uh, one century to the next. Um, and if you just go on Google and type in Da Vinci Lady with the Ermine, you'll see a beautiful portrait of a young woman holding a white. Um, ermine, which is something that looks like a ferret. And um, it's a famous portrait. And the story it is centered around this portrait. The woman in the portrait is a, a Sienese young lady named Cecilia Gallarani, and she became the mistress of the Duke of Milan in the 1490s. Um, she was kind of an object of desire for him. And, she, and he hired Leonardo da Vinci to paint her portrait. Now, years, centuries later, in, during World War II, another man became obsessed with Cecilia Gallarani, and his name was Hans Frank. You may know him by, uh, uh, by the name of the Butcher of Poland. He was Hitler's uh, governor of Nazi-occupied Poland. And this painting became an object of desire for him. And so I was fascinated at the idea of this portrait, um, you know, and, and this woman as an object of desire of two powerful men separated by 500 years. And so it's a story of um, the creation of the portrait and then what happened when the Nazis tried to steal this painting um, and then the, the efforts of the monuments men to get it back. So it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a page turner. I'll tell you that. That's what some of my early readers are telling me. It, um, in contrast to The Giant, this book came out, out of me very quickly. Um, it was a ton of fun to write. And um, so I hope that when it comes out in September that you'll get a copy and that you'll enjoy reading it. We'll have to do another podcast to talk about yeah, that book. Absolutely. Um, it, uh, of all the books you've written, which one do you think would be the best movie? Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I'm asked 
um, often if any of my books will be turned into movies. And I would love that. But I would imagine that any one of them will be a really high budget <laughs> movie. So I'm not sure a producer is going to want to take one on. <laughs> yeah, you, you would demand it would be like, okay, this is it's going to take $100 million to make this movie. I mean, yeah. that's, that's what it is. I'll say, let's say The Giant. Who would you want to play Michelangelo? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Yeah, it would have to be somebody short, um, with dark hair, olive skin, and a very uh, grumpy expression on his face. <laughs> what actor? With the exception of the well, with the exception of the olive skin, it's it's Tom Cruise. I think it's okay. I think it's I think it's Al Pacino. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, Al Pacino. How old Al is? Pacino. <laughs> Oh, it, ha- it has to be a it has to be someone about twenty one years old. So, <laughs> <laughs> how about Jacopo? Who would play Jacopo? Yeah, that's a good question too. Um, there too, it would have to be a young man, um, and his appearance. We don't really know what he looked like, and so that's sort of open. Um, so, of course, it, it could be any one of these uh, handsome young actors in their twenties <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, you know, you're you're an art historian. How much art do you have? When, when if I were to go to to the Morelli House, would I walk in and see just a plethora of art? You know, I'm not a collector. I find that historians and collectors are kind of two different animals. Um, However, I will say that picking up small things along the way is sort of an occupational hazard. You know, I have a series of shopping guidebooks um, starting with Made in Italy. I have one called Made in Florence, Made in Venice. Uh, made in Naples in the Amalfi Coast. And as I travel, I, I pick up small things. But before we hit record, we were talking about Volterra in Tuscany. I have lots of little alabaster things in my house, um, you know, and, and, and I love jewelry. So, and it doesn't have to be expensive, but I've got, for example, um, on last summer, I picked up a beautiful alabaster pendant uh, necklace that was not expensive, but it's lovely. And um, I have a weak spot for Murano glass jewelry. <laughs> so I don't have a lot hanging on my walls, but I have a lot of small things that I've picked up as an occupational hazard. Do you look at architect- architecture as art? I mean, so did, not just the paintings. Do you, do you, when you go, do you look at the architecture and go, that, that's art? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly for the, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, you know, architects... They're, they're, they perceived a church, let's say, as what the Germans would call a Gesamtkunstwerk. It's a, it's like a total work of art. You know, it's there's no um, division between the architecture and the painting and the stained glass and the mosaic floor. And you know, it's all part of the same um, opus, the same building. And so, um, yes, absolutely. In, in preparing to talk with you this morning, I was kind of fascinated by your, your take on the virus and the plagues and how that, how the plagues, the bubonic plague and, and so on influenced the architecture, right? Of Italy and the art. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's so weird, but, um, I wrote a story set in Siena in 1348, which if you um, know your your medieval history, you know 1348 was an absolutely calamitous year for Italy. Um, they lost a significant portion of their population in the Black Death. And um, just as I finished this story, I it was collected in an anthology with a, about a dozen other authors, and we 
um, put it together in a book called We All Fall Down. They're all plague stories. And strangely enough, you can't make this stuff up. We hit publish on March 1st of this year, <laughs> not knowing that, you know, within a couple of weeks, the entire world was going to be locked down in a pandemic. So it was just so weird that this that this book came out um, right at that time. And um, I do think that it's fascinating to ponder what the um, the impact of the plague has been on art and architecture. You know, the famous Church of the Salute in Venice was built um, as um, a tribute and related to uh, many people's lives being saved during the during the plague. But, um, you know, there are lots of other instances. For Tuscany specifically, there's a, a famous scholarly book called Painting in Florence and Siena After the Black Death that explores how themes in, in painting changed after that 1348 calamitous year. Uh, it's a fascinating book, even if you're not um, a scholar, um, I highly recommend it. It's a short read. You know, I was, uh, it was rude of us not to even bring up COVID-19 and ask how you were doing and I'm, uh, how are you doing and are your four teenage kids getting sick of you yet? <laughs> well, you know, we've all, we've all done well. We, um, we are, we've been locked down at our home on the coast of Georgia. And, um, you know, for me personally, not a lot has changed. Um, I'm a, I'm a super introvert. I love working from home. I'm very reclusive to begin with. So um, that, you know, nothing along those lines has changed. What has changed for me is having my my husband doing conference calls in my workspace <laughs> and having my kids home and, and homeschooling. But, you know, there have been a lot of there have been a lot of good things that have come out of it for my family, at least. Um, one of which is um, my oldest, who's been um, more than a thousand miles away in college, has been back under our roof. And that's made mom very happy, even though I'm not sure it's made him happy. He was he had to cut his spring break short to come home. <laughs> um, but it's it's definitely had its challenges, but it's had its good parts too. And how about the two of you? How has it changed your lives? You know, we've we had college kids come home, so uh, I'm kind of in the same boat. Uh, no one was expecting them to come back as early as they did. Uh, spring break ended in their home, and so that's great. Uh, that's great, and it also changed the dynamic of the household, like you like you said. So uh, mom's happy, that's for sure. Right. You know, I I have one out of the house already. So we talked earlier. She she lives in Mississippi, but uh, my I do have a senior in high school this year. So she's, you know, that was kind of hard that's, to that's miss. A bummer. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I think she's more worried. She's actually going to go to school in New Orleans, um, follow her sister's footsteps down to uh, the Crescent City. So she, as long as she she's like, as long as I get to go to college, that's all I care about. Now you mentioned the Georgia coast. So Savannah is one of my favorite cities in America. Are you close to Savannah? Yes, I am about an hour south of okay. Savannah. So, um, yep, this is my home. I've got um, 17 family members here. I'm very lucky that my home is also a really beautiful place and a great place to live. So, um, but shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> You're like on that Florida Georgia line, aren't you? Cl very close. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that uh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, so has the has. Has COVID been a blessing for the book because a lot of people home now? Do they read more? Um, I, you know, you don't want to call it a blessing, but is it easier to sell a book during something like this, uh, or is it harder? 
You know, I feel really fortunate because, um, you know, I feel like that my, you know, my, my work has really flourished during this time. And, you know, my heart really goes out to people, you know, like my brother, for example, has a local business that was really hard hit by, by this. Um, and I know many other people uh, have been so hard hit. Um, for authors, I think that, you know, many more people are reading. One kind of interesting thing to come out of this, I think, is that a lot more people have turned to ebooks than, and so a lot of people have made a transition during this period from reading physical books to reading ebooks, which I think is actually a good thing. Um, ebook readers are very voracious. And so, you know, I know in my own behavior, you know, once I turned to ebooks some years ago, I just I fly through them. I just, you know, can't get enough. The other thing that has been really fascinating, though, is that I think especially the older generation are now so accustomed to being online uh, on Zoom or on Skype or on FaceTime or whatever. And you know, views of my online courses have just gone through the roof. People are home. They are um, eager to go to Italy, even if virtually. I mean, as you know, I'm sure many of you in your audience and many in mine have had to cancel long looked forward to trips to Italy and they um, were, and that was really disappointing. And so the opportunity to travel virtually to Italy is very appealing right now. So for me, I, that's the biggest thing that I've seen is that people are really hungry for education, online education and online virtual trips um, to other places. Maybe, and maybe it's a form of escapism, whether reading a book or watching a class online. Well, what I think it's good for is that we have a lot of friends that have uh, agriturismos, they've got uh, vineyards, they run tours. It's, it, I feel sorry for them because they've lost a lot of business, but they've been forced to think differently about the way they market. And I, th and I think they've done a wonderful job of doing exactly what you just said, virtual tours, uh, whether it be an aperitivo, whether it be a cooking class. It's just fun to watch their imagination take hold in this digital age and adapt. Because what that does is they're like, okay, I watched this. Now I know when I can go back, I want to go back. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's sort of advanced everyone's, um, you know, um, willingness to just jump online and take advantage of something like this where you know this transformation might have taken 10 years otherwise yeah. <laughs> happened in three months yeah well and, and just speaking for myself it, it makes me appreciate um talking with you and all all the thoughts and planning that go into going back to tuscany i, I think we're all eager to to escape like you said and get out of here Yes. So it's fantastic talking with you, Laura. This is this has been a great conversation. I, I got one more question because you mentioned the ebooks, and um, I, I've got the attention span of a squirrel. Uh, it might be my <laughs> might be my mild dyslexia. I don't know. But you do have an audiobook on this. Did you read the audiobook? Are you the are you the narrator? No. Um, for the giant specifically, I have a fabulous narrator named Eduardo Camponeschi. He lives in Rome. He's a stage actor. Um, and not only does he have a beautiful, natural Italian accent, but he's also really good at doing the, the intonation and the different character voices. I've narrated my nonfiction, but I leave the 
fiction narration to the professionals. <laughs> do you like do you like it when you do narrate? Do you like it? Because I I can tell when somebody's passionate about a book because I listen to a lot of audiobooks and I, yeah. I, I, I I purchased one that I'm really looking forward to. And if the narrator sucks, I turn it off right away, you know. And it's just like I, I like the authors because they read it with their with what they're thinking. And so, do you like it when you do narrate it? Yeah, I I do enjoy it. It's as I'm sure you know, it's exhausting yeah. to narrate a book. I mean, physically and mentally draining. Um, I really felt, however very um, convicted about narrating my nonfiction books because it because of everything you just said. I, I just felt like that's what my readers would want. They they want to hear from me. Um, with fiction, however, like I said, it's a little different. It's a little bit more of a um, a little bit more of a production. There's a little bit more production value to it. And so I, I felt like having a, a professional narrator and specifically an actor was going to make this story um, better and a better experience for the listener. Excellent stuff. Laura, it's been a pleasure. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to two blokes from Nebraska. And, uh, and it, was a, it was great to catch up. And hopefully we can do it again maybe in September when your next book comes out. That would be great. I'd love it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you again, and I really appreciate your having me. Have we talked to anyone who has written this many books? No, not even close. I mean, we've wanted to talk to Frances Mays, but she keeps blowing us yeah, off. We're not, we're not there yet. But <laughs> what, what, what is it? What do we have to do to talk to Frances Mays? I don't, I don't know. But <laughs> you know, Laura Morelli's fantastic. And she is. She's written so many historical nonfiction and fiction and guides and. Uh, she's amazing. She really is an amazing person. And, and she's so accommodating. You know, I, I always get a little nervous when I reach out to people who are, are on her level, should we say, of, you know, she's written a lot of books. She's she's so good at what she does. You know, you usually sometimes you got to go through the agent. you got to go through the publicist. And Laura's not like that. I just I, I just reached out and said, hey, would you want to do the podcast? And she's like, absolutely. Looking forward to, to catching up with you guys. And uh, um, she supplied us with a copy of the book. I, 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 I've got to dive in a little bit to it, um, but uh, just looking forward to, to exploring it more. And I didn't know you did the Etruscan women's course. Yeah, I kind of kept that secret. Didn't yeah, I? why did you do that? Why did you, know, you keep that from me? I just I explore, you know, broaden yeah. the horizons. Uh, yeah. Etruscan women, it's kind of an interesting subject. And I'm really looking forward to her uh, dual timeline book in the fall. That sounds like a an, an interesting storyline. I, 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 and I keep from you how much wine I have shipped in from Italy. You have. <laughs> By the way, uh, speaking of that, um, so many of our friends who you've heard on this podcast, and there's a lot of them, you can almost pick any one, there are great deals coming out of Italy right now if you want to have wine shipped to you. Um, I, I I had one shipped from San Gimignano. I've got 12 bottles upstairs, which I haven't shared any with Pat yet. Uh, Anthony <laughs> Frevoletti, we've done a couple orders with him. I mean, I'm just telling you, there's, if you like the wine that you've tried in Italy or if you always wanted to try an Italian wine, just uh, you can reach out to us by uh, emailing us, totaltuscany at gmail.com. We'd be happy to recommend uh, some places you can order. You can get some really good deals, some free shipping right now, uh, and even put you in contact with some people who can make some great recommendations. It's, it's well worth it. It, it really is. I mean, it's uh, and and you can enjoy the fruits of their labor and, and and dream of the day that we can we can all go back. But what I want you to do right now 
is go to lauramorelli.com and purchase The Giant. You can buy it on audiobook. You can buy it on Kindle. You can buy a, hard, uh, uh, a paperback and I believe a hardback, uh, a hardbook cover. So and, and purchase the book and, and, and go through the story uh, that she's written that has been a labor of love, as she mentioned, for 20 years. That's Laura Morelli. Uh, dot com. Also, you can follow uh, Total Tuscany on all our social media channels. Uh, we are on Facebook. Give us a like. Give us a follow on Instagram. And yeah, we have Twitter. I, I don't know. I, Twitter's just negative to me now. I just like living on 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 Instagram and Facebook, and you can always do some of that. But if you want to go to Italy, you want to know about a trip to Italy, reach out to Pat and myself. We are happy to provide a 15-minute uh, free consultation. And if you want to uh, start exploring what you can do more, we can talk more in-depth about uh, helping you plan your dream vacation to Tuscany. For Mr. Pat Capania, I'm Travis Justice. Thank you for joining on this edition of the Total Tuscany Podcast.